HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash hrn today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash hrn. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. We have pancake eating contest. The pancake breakfast is all day long. They're always boiling sap all day long. There'll be syrup, lollipops, candy, hard candies, and the soft maple candy. Cream that you put on your butter or put on pancakes. Maple popcorn, maple cotton candy, Maple sundaes, maple milkshakes, maple frosted donuts, maple cotton candy, maple coffee, there'll be maple tea. Um, so come hungry is what I'm saying. <laughs> when the days begin to warm and the nights stay cool, it's time for maple trees to start making delicious sap that we can turn into syrup. You just heard from Paige Parker, the chairperson of the 50th Maple Festival in Marathon, New York. You'll hear more about this festival's sweet traditions very soon. This week on Meet and Three, we take a deep dive on mapling. We all know and love maple as an insatiable topping for pancakes and for the delectable alchemy it creates when combined with bacon. 
second to its connotation with breakfast, maple is often associated with fall flavors. However, harvesting maple sap takes place over a few short weeks in the early spring across the northeastern U.S. Maple harvesters have to gamble and predict when exactly the sap will run to the outer limbs of the stately sugar maple tree. This has become harder and harder as our climate becomes more volatile. Maple is more than just a conventional sweetener, and we'll hear from families, farmers, and indigenous communities about what maple harvesting means to them. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meat in 3 on HRN. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. Across upstate New York, towns are starting to thaw after a long, snowy winter. Communities are coming back to life. In the small town of Marathon, New York, a celebration is about to begin. Anna Canny tells us what's so special about her family's hometown, where Maple is queen. Well, I'm from there. <laughs> no, just kidding. That's my mom, Nancy Canny. Uh, it's the home of the Maple Festival and at least three generations of my family. Right now, Marathon is preparing for the Central New York Maple Festival, which begins on April 2nd. It's an annual celebration of the sticky sweet product we all love. It's production, it's producers, and of course, all of the delicious maple treats. Maple cream, maple sundaes, maple popcorn, waffles, and maple ice cream. The festival brings thousands of people from surrounding areas into the tiny town. And the event that kicks it all off is the Maple Queen pageant. As my cousin Margaret recalls, the pageant is a big deal. When they announced that the tickets are getting sold, people would wake up at like four in the morning to go get in line for tickets. It's always like front page of the newspaper. Yeah. And I, Anna Canny, am the descendant of maple royalty. Kind of. I am, you know, whatever runner up, but uh, Margaret will know more about being the queen. Margaret was the town's 40th maple queen. My name is Margaret Broderick, and I was crowned queen of the pageant in 2010. The pageant is a lot like any other pageant. Contestants prepare for choreographed dances, speeches, and of course, their pageant walk. They're judged on beauty, poise, and personality. But they're judged on one more thing, too. Maple fun facts. So we had a, like a whole bunch of facts that we had to learn because during the pageant, you'd be quizzed. You know, when you came out, someone would say, so can you tell us how far a hole is bored into a maple tree? Um, you know, how far does the tap go? And it's like the typical maple syrup tap goes one eighth of an inch into the tree. I think I was the only person they asked a maple fact to. And it was like, how many gallons of sap do you need to make a gallon of syrup? I don't remember. I think it's like 30. And the queen and her court have a packed itinerary for Maple Festival weekend, officiating a pancake eating contest, visiting the sugar shack, and greeting vendors at each booth. It was kind of cool. You got treated like mini marathon royalty for a day. There's also a tree planting ceremony. So every Maple Queen has a tree. I think there was a golden shovel. 
and the whole court is there and like the mayor's there and the organizer and I just put a shovel full of dirt on the tree and that's like that year's maple tree. In a few decades, Margaret's tree will be tapped for sap, just like all the other Maple Queen trees dating back to 1971. My mom moved our family away to another small upstate town where I grew up, and there's no such food royalty there, so I'll never inherit a crown. In towns and grocery stores all across the Northeast, maple is king, or in some cases, it's queen. But how does it get from the vascular system of maple trees to the diner counter? Will Hartman speaks with Vermont mapler Dave Foligno to find out. Well, what you're doing is the tree on a, on a day when it's above freezing, anytime um, after the leaves fall off, a maple tree, after it's been through a cold spell will send some sap up to the buds to start to develop them for the next year. So it's starting to send sugar up into the buds. And the most pronounced period of time when it does it is in late winter, early spring. The sugar content is higher and the sap flows are pretty copious. They're, you might get uh, from one tree in one season, you get about 25 or 30 gallons of sap from each tree. Sounds like a lot, except that it's virtually like like water. And if you didn't know better, you'd think you were you were looking at just pure clear water with a tiny hint of sugar in it. So 25 or 30 gallons of, of the sap translates into about a half of a gallon of syrup per tree per year. That's maple farmer Dave Felino from Hillsboro Sugar Works in central Vermont. Traditional syrup making calls for boiling the sap down to the desired consistency. However, as Dave mentioned, that requires well over 95% of the water content of the sap to be removed. Boiling this sheer volume of sap that Dave harvests would make the entire process, as Dave called it, not economically viable. So, he uses a process called reverse osmosis, which removes 90% of the water without having to raise the temperature of the sap. So that environmentally, a reverse osmosis is a really good thing. The alternative is to burn something to make the syrup, either wood or oil, or use electricity to do it much more efficiently and then finish it with wood or oil. So, you know, it's kind of a It's not just a simple argument of, oh, we're doing the traditional way and it's much better. It's a, you know, it's kind of a delicate balance. After undergoing the reverse osmosis process, Dave uses commercial evaporators to boil his sap down to the consistency that he desires. This way, he can use less energy and not lose any quality when he condenses his sap into syrup. Because maple trees take up to 50 years to be commercially viable, it's important to Dave that he be as respectful to his trees as he possibly can be. This is mostly accomplished by making sure he's not over-drilling or over-tapping his trees. Dave says that when he gets it right, and the sap is running all the way from the top of the mountain on his property to the sugar house at the bottom, it feels as though spring is returning and that life is coming back to the forest. It's sort of the first hint that life is continuing, that the the earth is coming back, that... uh, the leaves will be out soon. It's 
sugaring happens for the most part right on that edge of winter when the days are starting to warm. But it's also on those days when the sap runs, it's almost like they're alive when you're at the sugar house. You're you're getting this quantity of sap from them that says we're back and we're we're vital. And it's just an amazing thing to to witness and be a part of. We've got some trees that I've I know because uh, some have fallen over and I've cut them up. They're from the Civil War era, and we're still getting sap from them. So we have a range of trees that are 40 years old to ones that were saplings when the Civil War started, and they're still productive. Yeah, but that speaks to the if you're careful and you're a, a good steward. That speaks to the potential sustainability and longevity of it, if the environment is stable. However, as the winters get shorter and shorter, and the weather becomes more volatile by the year, predicting these sap runs and scheduling around them has become harder than ever. Dave now taps his trees a full month earlier than he did 20 years ago, but is insistent upon the fact that if done right, mapling can go on indefinitely, with very little environmental impact. He's not putting anything into his soil and barely altering the terrain around his farm. Dave's commitment to mapling is a labor of love. It's hard, unpredictable work, but can be so rewarding and produces something that is familiar, refined, and oh so delicious. You can hear more about the impacts of a changing climate on maple farming later in this episode. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a brief break. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. Today, I'm asking business owners to take part in our business membership drive by supporting HRN's mission with a $500 membership. HRN will shine a light on your work and you'll help sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You'll also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Thank you for your support. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a restaurant marketing and commerce platform that helps you get discovered, make more money, and engage your diners so that you can deliver great hospitality, both in person and online. A Brooklyn fan favorite, Reunion is truly a love letter to Tel Aviv. Opening its doors in 2014, customers adore this light-filled cafe for its authentic Israeli comfort food including shakshuka, falafel, and a variety of mezes. Reunion is one of over 8,000 restaurants that leverages BentoBox to power their digital front door, including their website, online ordering, event management, and more. Visit getbento.com HRN to learn more and get your first month free. 
That's getbento.com slash HRN. Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Meat and Three. A Google search of the terms maple and climate change brings up doomsday headlines like climate change could mean less maple syrup for your pancakes and the end of maple? Articles warn of warmer winters and shortened sugaring seasons, pushing maple syrup to the brink of extinction. Nora Peachin investigates these predictions and what they could mean for the country's number one maple-producing state, Vermont. Here is Vermont Secretary of Agriculture, Anson Tebbets. There's a lots of uh, nervousness, I would say, with some of our sugar makers. They've seen a difference over the last few years about what's happening in the sugar bush. But how dire is the situation, really? Maple specialist Mark Isselhart at the University of Vermont Proctor Maple Research Center says it's not entirely clear. It's so hard to forecast and, and predict that, just like it's impossible to predict how the rest of this 2022 season is going to go. We just have no way of knowing. Mark worries that news coverage forecasting the end of maple is conflating a shorter sugaring season with decreased sap yield. The Vermont maple sugaring season has been decreasing in number of days as temperatures rise. The sugaring season is starting earlier. It's ending earlier. And the overall duration in terms of total number of days is being compressed. Over the last, say, 60 years, we've seen that pattern. But sap yields have remained constant or increased. Mark explains that what actually matters most for production output is the number of warm days followed by freezing nights during a sugaring season. These days are what stimulate the sap flow mechanism in the maple trees. The length of time from the first day to the last day doesn't always correlate with how good a season could be. Because you could have a, a really compact number of ideal sap flow days and have a really good season, or you could have a really long number of days that's interrupted consistently by freezing events or consistently hot weather. Whether a season is good or bad depends on how many of those events take place. So I think, I think even that is enough to explain how complex the issue of climate change is, because now you're trying to say, okay, looking forward, how many of those ideal sap flow days are we going to lose moving forward? It's very hard to predict that. What we can say with certainty is that anomalous weather events, like short, unusually warm or cold periods during the sugaring season, have posed and will continue to pose the greatest challenges for maple producers. Flashy flood events that cause erosion uh, windstorms that blow over crop trees, ice storms that knock out trees' canopy, reduced moisture uh, through drought uh, or abnormally dry conditions. Those are all real serious threats going forward. 
Anson says maple producers are acutely aware of the environmental threats they face and are actively seeking ways to overcome them. They're tapping their trees earlier in the year, diversifying their revenue streams, and implementing new technologies and climate-smart farming practices. It's on the minds of sugar makers. They've seen a difference over the last few years. They've told us that. But they're, uh, you know, sugar makers over time, you know, going way, way back uh, decades ago, were always adapting, changing, looking at new technologies. For a rural state like Vermont, sustaining the maple industry is essential. Anson explains why. It's important that we maintain uh, the uh, maple economy. It brings millions of dollars uh, to the state of Vermont. It also is part of our identity. Uh, It's part of uh, who we are in Vermont. Um, Agriculture is so important to our lifestyle, also to our rural areas. And not to have a thriving um, maple industry would have a, a dramatic impact on our rural economy. The Vermont Department of Agriculture and researchers like Mark and his team at the University of Vermont are working hard to support maple farmers in the face of a changing climate. While Vermont, Canada, and New York State may have turned maple syrup into their specialties, it's important for us to remember the long history it has with displaced Indigenous communities. And this injustice doesn't rest in the past. Alex Chun talks to an Indigenous maple farmer about a recent incident between the community and the Detroit police. So hello, my name is Jerry Jandro. I'm a member of the Crane Clan, and I come from the Keweenaw Bay Indian community, uh, Lake Superior Band of Ojibwe. I am also the owner and operator, along with my family, of Dynamite Hill Farms, which is a 30-acre farm that's located within the Keweenaw Bay Indian Community Reservation Boundaries. Harvesting maple at Dynamite Hill Farms is an agricultural practice as well as a spiritual one. The differences in in producing maple syrup uh, and maple sugar is not necessarily the mechanics. You know, we still use taps and uh, or spiles that you'll find on basically any single maple syrup producing operation with some subtle differences with the same concept. And so it's that ceremony that we're we're doing before we even tap any trees. Uh, we want to express our, our gratitude and our appreciation and share what we can with those trees, uh, acknowledging them and the gifts that they share and letting them know our intention. Since 2019, indigenous maple farmers like Cherry have been invited by the Detroit Sugarbush Project to teach local communities how to respectfully tap maple. The project is a partnership between the National Wildlife Federation, the City of Detroit, and local advocacy groups. It connects Detroit youth and indigenous expert in maple syrup. In late February 2022, just about a month ago, the group gathered at Detroit Rouge Park for an annual tapping ceremony. This year, after the attendees commenced a ceremonial bonfire, they were confronted with a fleet of police cars and helicopters. Asserting that the event was in violation of city ordinances, the police insisted it be shut down within minutes, threatening those present with arrest, although nobody was detained. Chief of Police James White later apologized for, quote, the interruption of a sacred ceremony, unquote, and said, quote, I have directed our executive manager of, of diversity equity, and inclusion, Mary Engelman, to identify opportunities for our offices to work with the organizers. 
Unquote. Jerry was not present at this year's ceremony, but feels hurt by the incident nonetheless. The police also arrest attendee at the 2021 ceremony, but left after the organizer presented a permit. Many see the harassment as part of a deeper issue. Uh, I saw some of the the videos that people had posted on social media, and when I saw those things, you know, my heart broke just to see the the aggression by the police department and their their lack of education on what it is that we do as indigenous people. This this kind of policing and this aggression is is actually par for the course with policing of indigenous people. In this country, in the United States of America, indigenous people are the most policed people. And to give you an example of that, I'm coming from a, a very rural area in the western upper peninsula of Michigan. Just in my, where my reservation is, we have the Barriga police, we have the Lance police, we have the Barriga sheriff's office, we have the Michigan State Police. We have the Michigan DNR uh, conservation officers here. We also have the tribal police department and the tribal conservation officers. And there's also a, an FBI presence that's here. West Michigan indigenous communities' fraught relationship with policing is inseparable from the history of the region treaties between tribes and the federal government. And so the entire state of Michigan is ceded via treaty. Uh, the last land session treaty was 1842. That's the treaty that, that my tribe signed that ceded the western half of the Upper Peninsula. Now, in thinking about that, the conversation when, when people start talking about treaty rights or with what little they understand, they always talk about the rights that we've retained as indigenous people. What they fail to understand is that those treaties also give non-tribal people rights. And those rights that belong to non-tribal people are the rights to occupy the space. If those treaties weren't signed with our people, all of the non-tribal people that live here in this state would be essentially trespassing on Anishinaabeg land. It's always, what did the Indians get? Why do these Indians always have special rights? Well, you have special rights living here, right? And so it's very important that people understand that those treaties, they go both ways. And the lack of education around those rights is essentially what gives the police department their misunderstood authority over tribal people. Mabel exists at the crux of this tension about land ownership. These treaties not only remove land from the Ojibwe people, but also rob them of a long-standing lucrative maple economy. In 1865, my community, the Keweenaw Bay Indian community, made over 450,000 pounds of maple sugar in one season. And after those treaties were signed, they basically came in and they started clear-cutting these forests. By the time they made it to us and started clear-cutting our forests, their forests on the east end had had enough time to recover to a point where they could actually start sugaring it. And so once they took that economy away from us, they really started ramping up production back east. And since then, they've never looked back. There's a documentary that's called The Great Heist. They talk about the maple syrup industry that's over in Quebec, I believe, where they have like the largest reserves of maple syrup. And, and somebody had devised a plan to start stealing thousands and thousands of barrels of maple syrup. And they talk about how it was done and how much was stolen. And, and I, I kind of laugh at that. Not that I think it's funny, but it's not actually The Great Heist. The Great Heist is actually the stealing of this economy from our people. And the millions and millions of dollars that was taken away from us 
And um, I, I think it's important that we, when we talk about these foods, that when you get that amazing maple flavor on your food, you're tasting the Ojibwe culture. You're tasting the Odawa culture. You're tasting the Botawatomi culture. You're, you're tasting the, the Mohawk culture. You're, you're tasting the Oneida culture. You're tasting the culture of the people from this place. And, and we're never given credit for that. And I think that really is the great heist. Reclaiming the maple industry has been an important goal of Dynamite Hill Farms since its inception. Coupled with community service and education, Jerry hopes to bridge the knowledge gap on maple and indigenous heritage through respectful farming and food production. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Anna Canny, Alex Trun, Nora Peachin, and Will Hartman. Meet in 3 is produced by Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Made in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Made in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, rate us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>